Let's pray together. Father, you are a great God. You are the one who has given life and breath and hope to your people because you have given us yourself. You've given us your son. And so, Father, we come before you this morning with thankful hearts, rejoicing in your goodness. But, Father, we recognize that we do not deserve your goodness because we are not good. And yet you freely give to us of yourself because you are good. So, Father, this morning I pray and and ask that you would help us to rest in your goodness. Father, we are sinful creatures who cannot set our minds on you the way that we should. And yet, Lord, the blood of Christ has covered even that. And so this morning, Lord, we plead his blood, and we pray that you would work in us. As we come to your word together, Father, we ask that you would speak to us. We ask that you would reveal yourself to us. That as we hear your word proclaimed, as we consider these things together, that we would not be the same people we were when we came in. That we would submit ourselves to the authority of the scriptures as the rule of our lives. And so, Father, use this time Move in the hearts of your people. In Christ's name, amen. Turn, if you would, in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28. Matthew, chapter 28. We'll be looking at verses 18 through 20 this morning. And we are wrapping up our series on the Christian life today. That's not to say that We have, over the last nine weeks, said everything that there is to say about life as a Christian. There's still quite a bit more to the scriptures that we haven't covered in this series. But today's message, as the concluding message, is a window into what the rest of our lives in Christ are supposed to be. Everything else that we find in the Word of God falls under the umbrella of what it is we're going to talk about today. Last week, we talked about sharing the gospel and the importance of it. And in that message, I mentioned that it could be thought of as a part one to today's part two. So if you weren't here last week, if you missed that message, feel free to go back and refresh yourself on it. It's on our website. uh, It's on our podcast channels. You can find it there. Um, But as I talked about last week, and as we're going to really look at today, our calling does not end with simply sharing the gospel. The idea here is not get saved, the end, or share the gospel with someone else, the end. But we're going to also see today that our calling to go and to make disciples is more than just a command. It is a reflection of the reality of who Jesus is and the love that he has for his people. And so we'll begin this morning by reading all three verses 
And then we'll focus on verse 18 to examine today's first point, the authority of Jesus. The authority of Jesus. If you got one of our sermon listening guides or got a bulletin when you came in, you'll see that we have three points this morning. That's the first one, the authority of Jesus. So let's look together, Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Our passage today is commonly known as the Great Commission. And most of the time when we talk about the Great Commission, we tend to focus our attention on verses 19 and 20, which is where we find the actual commission part. In fact, if you do a Google search for the Great Commission, you'll find that the vast majority of search results are articles, blog posts, and sermons focusing just on verses 19 and 20. But what we should recognize is that the word go in verse 19 is followed by an extremely important word, particularly in the study of Scripture, the word therefore. And as we have discussed before, when you see the word therefore in the Bible, you always need to take the time to understand what it is there for. And you do that by going back into the previous verses to see what that word therefore is pointing to. And in this case, in the case of the Great Commission, it is pointing back to verse 18, where Jesus tells the disciples that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. The Great Commission, the the last recorded command of Jesus given to his people, is grounded in his authority over all things. And as we consider what it means to make disciples, we are therefore compelled to frame that within the context of the authority of Jesus Christ. And so we're going to look at a few aspects of this authority, uh, uh, two aspects of this authority, both the nature of it and the scope of it. And so first, let's talk about the nature of Jesus' authority. From the beginning of Matthew's telling of the life of Jesus, there's a sort of veil covering the true face of Jesus. And when I say true face, I'm talking about of the reality spoken of in places like John 1.18, where he says, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. And places like Colossians 1.15, where it says, he, he being Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So verses like those help us to recognize that one of the purposes of the coming of Jesus is that we would see in him the reality of God, that he is, he has made known something that is unknowable to us because God is so different from who we are. This was intentionally done. This veiling of the fullness of Jesus's person was intentionally done. Jesus said more than once that certain things were not taking place yet because his hour had not yet come. But the death and resurrection of Jesus changed that. Jesus himself said that this would happen in John 12, 23, in the lead up to his death. 
When Jesus is speaking of the fact that he is about to die, he says, And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So when we think of the hour coming, when we think of the unveiling of Jesus, it is when we will see him in his glory. We will see him as he truly is. There will be no more hiding who Jesus is after this. Consider the reaction of Thomas to finding out that Jesus was truly raised from the dead in John chapter 20, verses 26 through 28. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. So I'm going to pause here and give you some context. Jesus had appeared to his disciples after his resurrection, but Thomas wasn't there. And all the disciples tell Thomas, we saw Jesus. And Thomas gets a horrible reputation as doubting Thomas, which is horribly unfair because Thomas reacted like every, of, every one of us would have reacted. Remember, they were all hiding because they were afraid. They all think Jesus is dead, and then his body disappears from the tomb, and they're like, what is going on? And so Thomas, like any reasonable person, says, I'm not going to believe you guys unless I see him with my own eyes and I touch him with my own hands. And everybody's like, oh, doubting Thomas. That's not right. We would have all done the exact same thing. And so that's the context that we're in. So eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve believe. Jesus, knowing what is in Thomas's heart, knowing all things, tells Thomas, do what you need to do. And Thomas, again, who gets an unfair reputation, reputation as doubting Thomas, responds with more faith than any of the other disciples, because Thomas answered him and said, my Lord and my God. Thomas has no illusions about who Jesus is. Jesus, in his resurrection, is fully glorified, and Thomas testifies to that. He says Jesus is God, and he is. And so when Jesus here says, all authority has been given to me, that is the context of this authority, the supremacy of Jesus Christ over all things. This is echoed in Jesus saying that this authority has been given to him. And we need to carefully understand this because we could really easily fall into heresy right here. There is no authority that Jesus has ever lacked. All right? His authority is not something that he did not have, and now he has it. He is eternally all-powerful. What this is instead is a progressive revelation of the true Trinitarian nature of God, which we see explicitly in verse 19, and we'll talk more about it in just a little bit. But what we see here is that this verse echoes the prophecy found in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, which says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. 
So in that passage, we see three things given to the Son of Man, a.k.a. Jesus, authority, glory, and kingdom. And these are things that all exclusively belong to God. Consider Isaiah 48, 11, where God explicitly says that he will not give his glory to another. And so you see the Son of Man coming to the Ancient of Days, being God, and what is bestowed upon him? Dominion and glory in a kingdom, all things that are exclusive to God. And thus, if God, who does not share his glory with another, gives his, gives his glory to the Son of Man, what does that tell us? That the Son of Man is not another. He is one and the same. That's the true nature of Jesus' authority. It is rooted in his standing as God. It is not something that he won in conquest, as the ancient kings did, who would go off into battle and conquer people, and then they say, I'm the king, I have authority. It's not something that he claimed unjustly. He stole it from someone else. All is his because all things belong to him by virtue of his godhood. Romans eleven thirty six, my favorite verse in all of scripture. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. When we think about the nature of Jesus' authority, it comes from the fact that Jesus is God. And then when we think about the scope of his authority, what does his authority cover? Jesus says that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. His usage of heaven and earth calls to mind something that he said about the Father in Matthew eleven twenty five, 25, where Jesus called him the Lord of heaven and earth. Again, it helps us to recognize that this is a way of Jesus revealing his divine nature, as we've already covered, but it also helps us to recognize the scope of his authority. There is literally nothing that falls outside of his dominion. All authority in heaven, so all of the spiritual things, all authority on earth, all of the temporal things, all of it belongs to Jesus. He is in control and in charge of all of it. Abraham Kuyper famously said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. When you think about the scope of Jesus' authority, you can answer it this way, yes. Is that under his authority? Yes. Is this under his authority? Yes. Are you under his authority? Yes. And we need to understand that anything that we refuse to submit to Jesus is literally cosmic treason against the King of Kings. If you say over any part of your life, Jesus can have these things, but this is for me, that is serious sin. He owns everything. And while we may not pay for that treason now, there will be a reckoning one day. In Romans 2, 4 and 5, it says this, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath 
when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Paul says in Romans, don't take it for granted that God has not destroyed you yet. That's literally what he's saying. You think because God has not struck you down where you stand, that God's okay with you. That God says everything's all right. And that is not okay. You are 100% wrong. You are presuming upon his kindness and his patience. And what you're really doing is you are compounding wrath for yourself. God's righteous, furious anger. And there will come a day when you're going to have to pay up. Unless Christ has paid up for you. And so you may not presume upon his kindness in those ways. The ground of this command being the authority of Jesus is significant because it helps us to recognize the imperative nature of this command. When we think about the Great Commission, this is not something that we do if we feel like it. It's not something that we do if we have time. It's not something that we do if we feel like we're capable of it. It's not something we do if we can get around to it. Well, you know, if I can get all my stuff done and I can get away from this birthday party early enough, maybe then I'll go and tell and make disciples. No. This is something that the all-powerful king of creation, who has authority over all things, has commanded us to do. And so we must. We must. This is not negotiable. This is not optional. This is who we are. We must go and make disciples. And so that actually gets us into the actual command, the actual great commission. Verses 19 in the first half of 20. To go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And while it seems fairly straightforward, there are some significant things that are wrapped up in this command. The first thing is that it is a missional command, telling us to go to all nations. One of, the, one of the unique things we find in the Great Commission is the command to bring the gospel to other nations, to bring the gospel to other nations. This was not a feature of Old Testament Judaism. Old Testament Judaism, they were not told, go out and make Jewish converts. They were told, obey the law, be righteous, welcome people who come to you, but it's not for you to go and to tell. Christianity, the opposite is true. We are not called to sit and soak. We are called to go and to tell. Because although this was not a feature of Old Testament Judaism, it was repeatedly promised that the coming Messiah would be a hope for all nations. Isaiah 25, 6-9 says, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, 
Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. The promise of the Messiah was not just a promise for the Jews. It was a promise for the whole world. It was a promise for every tribe and tongue. And I can't help but recognize when you read that passage there at the end, when when they say, behold, this is our God, I can't help but think about what Thomas said when he touched Jesus' hand and Jesus' side. My Lord and my God. In that moment, Thomas is saying, you are the one we have been waiting for. So how do all the nations know? How do all the nations hear? Well, we talked about this last week. How are they to, how are they to believe in one, in one they've never heard of? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach without being sent? Well, this is being sent right here. Go, tell. It is missional. The Great Commission is missional at its core. Christians must be about going and telling. We personally know the hope of the nations. And without us going and telling, they will never know him. The Great Commission is also distinctly Trinitarian. Jesus tells us to go and baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. This is the first place in Scripture that we see the Holy Spirit explicitly named in this way. We see the, we, we are not the Holy Spirit, the Trinity, excuse me. We see the Trinity implied in other places all the way back in Genesis at creation. We see the, we see the Trinity implied there. We see the Trinity implied at Jesus' baptism. But here Jesus makes it explicit and plain that as we go and we baptize, we are to baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Some of you will remember that I did a theology class series on the Trinity last year. And so you will be more familiar with this than maybe others will. But the topic of the Trinity is extraordinarily important for us. Because the truth of the matter is this. If you do not believe in the Trinity, or if you believe wrongly about the Trinity and refuse to submit to what the Scriptures reveal to us about the Trinity, you are not a Christian. Denial of the Trinity is heresy, and heretics aren't saved. You need to understand this. Having a right understanding of the Trinity is a part of knowing Christ. And if you don't understand the Trinity rightly, you don't know Christ. It's like saying, I know Pastor Corey. He's a big fan of the Atlanta Falcons and the New York Yankees. Well, you don't know Pastor Corey then. Okay? If you know the Lord, you know the Trinity. It is essential to the Christian faith, which is why Jesus expressly says that we are to baptize in this way. So please indulge me for a few moments to give a brief explanation of the Trinity and how we are to think about it. As stated by pastor and teacher Sam Alberry, we can think of the Trinity in terms of who and what. Think about yourself. You are one who and one what. One who and one what. For example, I am Corey, who, and I am a human, what? 
One who and one what. You could try to subdivide my what into roles that I play, like husband, father, pastor, but ultimately those are all just things that I do, not necessarily what I am. Or to use a different example, think about Optimus Prime from the Transformers cartoons and toys, or I guess the movies, even though those are terrible. He is one who, but he is two what's. He's Optimus Prime, that's his who, but he's two what's. He is both a truck and a robot. He's one who and two what's. When it comes to God, however, he is completely different. He is three who's and one what. Three who's and one what. Three persons existing as one God. This is on full display here in verse 19. There is only one name that we are to baptize in. There's only one name. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The structure of this sentence in the Greek shows us that the way this is framed is that all three of these persons are sharing the name. That one name is shared by the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And these are not three different aspects of one God, but three distinct persons. This is not one God revealing himself in different ways. It's not God putting on different masks. This is one God in three persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This Trinitarian nature of God is uniquely Christian. And it sets Christianity apart from every other religion in the world. And this includes Judaism. You may have heard people say that we worship the same God that the Jews do. I've even heard some people say we worship the same God that the Muslims do. No, we don't. That's not true. We worship the same God that the Old Testament Jews did. But the moment that Christ came into the world and the Trinitarian nature of God was revealed in his death and resurrection, there was a distinct split in what God we worship. The moment that the Jews rejected Jesus, they submitted themselves to idolatry. They remade God in their own image. You need to understand this. To say the Jews worship the same God as us is to say the Trinity is not a big deal, that Christ is not a big deal. No. The moment that God revealed himself in this way, revealed the Trinity to his people, rejecting the Trinity is rejecting God. That's the reality that we have to reconcile with. Because the reality is that just as the Jews, in their rejection of the Trinitarian nature of God, just as they committed idolatry, if we reject biblical Trinitarian doctrine, We too are idolaters making God in our own image. And so when we think about the Great Commission, we must recognize the Trinitarian nature of it. And we must submit ourselves to it. The next thing we see, it's really not next, but we're working our way back to it, is that the Great Commission commands us to baptize. To baptize. The word baptize In the Greek, is baptizo, which literally means to immerse in water. Okay, so anybody who sprinkles their babies is doing it wrong. 
That's not baptism. But baptism does not simply happen in a vacuum. It is instead tied to two things. It is tied to conversion and it is tied to the church. That's that's the proper understanding of baptism. Being dunked into water after conversion before the church. That's what baptism is. And so when you think of it that way, we are commanded to share the gospel, see people come to faith in Christ, and then baptize them. We're not called to go to the nations and just grab random people and dunk them in the water. You're baptized. No, there's stuff that has to happen before that. And we need to rightly understand that when we talk about the Great Commission, that our mission is not to go into all the nations and build schools, to go into all the nations and dig wells, to go into all the nations and have sports camps, to go into all the nations and hand out candy and trinkets. Our mission is to go into all the nations, to share the gospel, and to baptize converts. And the fact that the command is to baptize and then flows into teaching, which we'll discuss more in a moment, means that we should rightly understand that the overarching goal of the Great Commission is to establish churches. That's the goal of the Great Commission. The Great Commission is not show up, preach the gospel, dunk some folks, go home. You have only gotten halfway. There's more required of us. Because baptism, properly done, is done within the context of the local church. It is the church's affirmation of someone's profession of faith. And then as, the, as I said before, the Great Commission flows into teaching, and that helps us to recognize the full, the full goal here. And so just as an aside, I just want to say this. Any missional goal that is not centered around this reality is not worthy of our consideration or support. I'm sorry, that's just the way that this is. We, and I don't mean Evans Creek, I just mean in general, churches have spent decades dumping money into things that are not actually aligned with the Great Commission. They make us feel good. Oh, we're reaching people. We're making them happy. We're giving them stuff. All we've done is make them more comfortable on the way to hell. If we are not focused on sharing the gospel and planting churches, we are not focused on the right things. All right, I'm off my soapbox. How can I say that this is ultimately about establishing churches? Well, it's because of the command to teach. Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. How do we do that? We baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So we make disciples by converting them. And then what's the next thing? Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. The two parts of making disciples are conversion and teaching. And that is the primary function of the church. To teach the word of God. And so if the Great Commission commands us to do this, to teach then it stands to reason that the church is at the heart of this. And what are we to teach? Well, it's pretty explicit. We're not to teach about how to find Jesus at the movies. We're not to teach about our politics. 
We're not to teach about the things that we enjoy. We're not even to teach about the culture wars. We are to teach converts to observe the commands of Jesus. This necessitates two things. First, that we teach what Jesus said. We can't teach people to observe what Jesus commanded if we don't teach them what he said, right? And this is not just his commands. This is doctrine as well. Just as I said earlier about the Trinity, we must believe rightly about these things. And so just to put it, just to, put it to you plainly, if I teach you about Jesus, but I'm wrong about the Trinity, I haven't taught you about the real Jesus. This is why doctrine is so important. Because doctrine is the framework in how, in how we understand these things. That's the, that's the point. Just like, oh, perfect example. Earlier, when Jesus says, all authority has been given to me. If we don't have a right doctrinal framework, we're going to go, see, Jesus didn't have authority, and now he does. God gave it to him. Well, guess what? That's what the Mormons believe. The Mormons believe that Jesus was a man who became God. Spoiler alert. They're not Christians. So right doctrine is essential to understanding what Jesus has said. Remember that the Pharisees were doing what God commanded, but they didn't know God. They were so far from God in their doing what God commanded that God himself stood in front of them and they killed him. The second thing that it necessitates is that we teach how to follow Jesus. Some churches are great at teaching the commands of Jesus. Do this, do that. Not as great at the how. Not as great at the how. We can't just say to people, go be like Jesus and leave them to their own devices. We must help them to understand, first of all, that it is the gospel alone that saves and not the law. We must help them to understand that they must rest in the finished work of Jesus and that our obedience to him does not save us, but it is done out of love and devotion to him. Again, there's that doctrine stuff. We also must help them to understand how to apply the teaching to their lives. Think about places like 1 Corinthians, uh, I think it's 11, where Paul talks about head coverings for women. If I were to just say, hey, the Bible says women wear head coverings and walk away, a lot of you ladies are going to be very confused. How, what, what, am I, what, what now? What do I do, Pastor? How do, how do I understand this? And so we, we can't leave people with an incomplete understanding. We have to teach them the how. And we have to teach people how to reason through difficult things that are not necessarily explicitly stated in Scripture. There are things that come to us in our lives that the Bible does not give us a, a specific command for. There just are. What do you do then? Well, the Bible doesn't tell me, so I'm frozen, I'm stuck. Well, that's where we help people to understand what principles the Bible teaches us and how to take those principles and live them out in these situations. That's what we do when we teach. Please understand that this requires a lot of you as an individual. Because you must know these things in order to teach them to other people. 
you're not, you're not a pastor. Most of you aren't. There's one of you who is. Most of you aren't pastors. Most of you aren't Sunday school teachers. As far as I'm aware, none of you are foreign missionaries. But even if you're not those things, you still have people in your orbit that you are called to teach. Example one, your families. Especially if you still have children at home. You are to be proclaiming the gospel to them, praying that the Lord would save them, and teaching them to observe all that Christ has commanded. So you really should be learning and growing in the faith because you are either being discipled or discipling someone else. And typically, you are doing both at the same time. And so it is a constant process of learning and teaching for you until you die. There's no retirement from making disciples. The last thing we see in the back half of verse 20 is we see the promise of Jesus. The promise of Jesus. The good news is that we don't have to try to fulfill the Great Commission in our own strength. Our Lord has given us a wonderful promise. He says, and behold, hey, hey, look, I am with you always to the end of the age. This should be a great comfort to us, this promise, for a few reasons. The first reason is that it is reflective of the Old Testament conquest. Jesus was likely intending for the disciples to link his promise with the promises that God made to the Jews in the Old Testament, specifically in places like Joshua 1.9. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. The Jews here in Joshua were about to go into the promised land, but it wasn't just going to be theirs for the taking. Like They weren't just going to walk in and be like, okay, this is ours now. They were going to have to conquer it. There were people groups there. There were armies there. There were great cities there. They were going to have to go and fight for it. Now, the Lord told them he was going to fight for them, but it's still a little scary. Because just because the Lord is going to win the battle, that doesn't mean you're going to survive the battle. And so the Lord promises them that he would be with them as they went on this dangerous mission. And he is promising the same thing to us. When he says go into all the nations, he's calling us to go to places that are not sunshine and rainbows. He's calling us to go to places that are openly hostile toward the gospel. They are openly violent toward Christians. And Jesus says, I'm with you always, so go. Go. Yeah, you might die. And to live is Christ, to die is gain. Go. I'm with you always. This promise is also, it also gives us comfort because it is permanent and far-reaching. Where Jesus says, I am with you always, that is the fourth all in these verses that we've looked at today. He has all authority. We are to go into all nations. We are to teach all that he has commanded. And then here at the end, this literally is translated as that he will be with us all the days. So when he is giving the great commission, it is rooted in all authority. And we're to go to all nations. And we're to teach all that he's commanded. 
and he's going to be with us all the way. It's structured that way on purpose. Christ wants us to recognize that, yes, this is a big job. Yes, it's an impossible job for you to do on your own, but not for me. And I am with you as long as it takes. We should take great comfort in the reality that once we are in Christ, we are always in Christ. John 10, 28 says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And so as we go into the nations, into potentially hostile territory, we know that Christ is with us. He will never grow weary or abandon us. He will never tire or need a rest. He will never be overcome and be defeated. He is our rock and our fortress for all of our days. Is the Great Commission too hard for us? Absolutely. Absolutely it is. But Christ is our rock and our fortress. The third thing that we see here in this promise that should bring us comfort is that it ushers in a new age. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The conclusion of Jesus' promise, when his promise stops, is a reminder of the event that we are looking forward to, his return. He is literally saying, as you go and make disciples, I will be with you. And I will always be with you until the day that I come back. And then I will be physically with you forever. The day that our mission stops, he'll be here. As long as we await his coming, we still have this mission. And he will be with us as we undertake it. And the moment that it's over, he'll be back. What an incredible promise this is. What an incredible promise this is. That our Savior, who has authority over all things, who is the King of all creation, will walk with us into hostile territory as we go and share the gospel, convert unregenerate people, baptizing them, teaching them all that the Lord has commanded. What an incredible promise. This is our calling as Christians, to make disciples. It is not negotiable. It is not optional. We are commanded to do this, even if it costs us our lives. Even if it costs us our lives. When I was a youth pastor, I looked at trying to plan some mission trips, and I had a parent come to me and say, well, you know, I don't think I want my child going on a mission trip. Well, why not? Well, it's dangerous. They could get hurt. They could die. And I said, respectfully, I think you might be missing the point. And they were missing the point. And you might feel like that's too extreme. That's too much, Pastor. You can't tell me that I have to be willing to die. May I remind you of Jesus' words in Mark chapter 8? And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, 
let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a whole man, profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Here is the reality that we all need to reckon with. If we do not consider making disciples as something that we must do, if we do not commit ourselves to doing this and actually do it, then the likely reality is that you're not a Christian. I'm just going to say that as plainly as I can. If you hear all of this and you go, yeah, that's all well and good for other people. That's for missionaries. That's for pastors. That ain't for me. My job is to just come here and sit in a pew and go home. I'm done for the week. I got my Jesus recharge, the end. If that's your attitude, you are likely not a Christian. If you can hear these things and not be convicted by the Spirit, you don't have the Spirit. This is what we must do. And refusal to submit to the authority of Jesus, remember, is idolatry. Which is a violation of commandment one and commandment two. So today, brothers and sisters, I urge you to repent of your inaction in making disciples. Remember that this calling is on all of us. If you are a Christian, you are called to make disciples and be discipled. That's your calling. And there are a variety of ways to do those things. And one of the biggest ways is by actually showing up to church. And when I say showing up, I don't mean showing up and falling asleep in the pew. I mean showing up and actively participating, singing, praying, listening to the sermon, thinking about these things, how they can apply to your life, establishing relationships with other believers, talking to them about things that matter, asking them about their walk with Christ, sharing with them about your own walk with Christ, finding someone who is not as far along in the faith as you and pouring into them, finding someone who is further along in the faith than you and asking them to pour into you. That is what it means to make disciples. Not all of us are called to go off into foreign lands. Not all of us are called to stand in the pulpit and preach. Not all of us are called to those things. But all of us are called to make disciples. All of us. So this morning, I urge you to commit yourself to doing just that. As we conclude this series on the Christian life, recognize the vital importance of this particular command to go and make disciples. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your word and for the truth that we find in its pages. Father, I pray that you would take these things and apply them to our hearts that Christ would be glorified in us today. Father, I pray that you would bring repentance upon us, that you would help us to see the places and ways that we have not properly committed ourselves to making disciples. And Father, you would help us to do just that. 
I pray for our pastors, our deacons, Lord, that you would help us as we seek to lead this church in these things. And I pray for our people, Lord, that you would give them strength and help them to rest in your promise that you have made us. Father, we submit ourselves fully to the authority of Jesus Christ, the King of all things. And I pray that you would use this time to help us to commit ourselves to him fully. In Christ's name, amen.